We are looking this morning at John chapter 6. We are coming to the end of that lengthy portion of scripture that we looked at last Lord's Day together, and we're only looking at just a few verses here at the end of John 6. This is the sequel to what we looked at together last Lord's Day. Jesus has been in Galilee and he has been performing miracles there, and most recently as a crowd of probably upwards to about 20,000 have stalked the Savior because they have seen his miracles, and uh, he has now fed them with five barley loaves and two small fish, and they have seen this miracle, and yet they have not understood this miracle. Um, And he has gone into that lengthy discourse about him being the greater Moses and him being the bread, the true bread that came down from heaven. And and he has used language that helps us understand what it means to really be partakers of Christ. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He has given us the essence of the gospel by saying, My broken body and my poured out blood on the cross is everything that your soul needs. And if you will come and you will believe, you will partake of that spiritual food that endures forever. Do not labor for the food that endures temporarily but for that food that endures to eternal life, which the Son will give you. And now, as we are looking at the end of this, and as I noted the sequel to this passage, we are looking at John chapter 6, beginning in verse 61. And actually, for the sake of context, let's start in verse 60, and we're going to read down to the end of the chapter to verse 71. Now John says, when many of his disciples, and he's speaking about many in that great crowd that Jesus has just Fed, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And that's probably better understood. Who can endure to hear it? Lest you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live because of me. They said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? 
He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in recent years, we have witnessed the rise of what has been called the deconversion or the ex-evangelical movement. There are even hashtags for social media where people uh, parade the fact that they have deconverted from their profession and adherence of Orthodox Christianity, Biblical Christianity, and that they are now wanting to identify themselves as ex-evangelicals. And it has become a trend, and myriads of people are parading that they are now deconverted. And the Bible... um, speaks of this. This is not something new or innovative to American Christianity, and old theologians had a name for this, and it is called apostasy. It is once making a profession of faith and then tragically falling away from the Lord Jesus, never really having known him savingly. And and when one famous, well-known teacher uh, apostatizes or deconverts and starts a podcast and a vlog and goes on Instagram to encourage everybody else to do this, um, uh, myriads, myriads of people joyfully join in and follow him because that's where their hearts are. I was reading, I was reading something that one such individual wrote about how he is now helping people get over the trauma Of believing in hell. Um, That is the most hateful thing you could ever do to someone, is to help them believe there is no eternal judgment, um, because then they will not have to see their need for a Savior who brings eternal life. Um, Here in this passage, we have in our Lord Jesus's ministry, the first great apostasy. You have the apostatizing of upwards to 20,000 people. That's an enormous number of people who, who can't bear any more to hear what the Savior is teaching. And the really sad thing and the really striking thing is that it comes at the moment when Jesus gives the most gracious words that it's arguable that he has ever spoken. My flesh is food indeed, my blood is is drink indeed. I have come to give life. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. There, there were never greater words than that for sinful souls. And at that moment, those words were what precipitated the greatest apostasy in the Lord Jesus's ministry. Now, this is going to be exceedingly instructive to us today. Um, before we look at this in detail, I want to say this I fear that many in Christian churches are oblivious to the fact that there are dangers lurking at your door to draw you away from the Lord Jesus Christ constantly. I I sort of took an inventory of this a few years ago, and I I realized there are subtle appropriations in the lives of Christians. There are subtle appropriations of aspects of New Age spirituality— Ritualistic asceticism, Eastern mysticism, religious moralism, ecclesiastical ecumenicalism. I know these are all big words. Cultural Marxism, prosperity gospels, self-improvement, financial improvement programs, or human personality evaluations. 
that have nothing to do with Jesus that Christians get enamored with. There's a thousand of them. They have nothing to do with biblical Christianity, and Christians are constantly getting involved in those to the degree where uh, what B.B. Warfield once said, I believe, starts to happen. People end up with a quote-unquote half-learned Christ, a half-learned Christ. Um, They want enough of biblical truth about Jesus, but they want all these other things. And, and many times, and I want you to listen very carefully this morning, many times when you, when you start to peel back what was going on in the lives of those who apostatize ultimately and who deconvert, that, that's what was at the center. They had a half-learned Christ. They were disciples for a time, but they had all these other things vying for their hearts, affections, and attentions. And ultimately, that tension um, couldn't stand anymore, and so they had to let go of one, so they let go of their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And, and if you think it can't happen to you, woe betide you, because it could happen to any of us if God let us go. By nature, we are no different. By grace, if we're savingly united to Jesus, you will not fall away. Let me say that emphatically. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And yet, the warnings are put out there indiscriminately so that we would say, where am I at when I see all those things happening around me? Now, that's what we're supposed to do here. And I want us to just consider here three things this morning. First, I want us to consider the great apostasy in this passage. And then I want us to consider the definitive confession And then I want us to consider the sobering warning, the great apostasy, the definitive confession, and the sobering warning. Well, as I've already noted, this is um, built on the teaching of our Lord Jesus. Uh, The people have a difficult time understanding this. Look back in verse 52, as Jesus has been explaining that he's the bread that comes down from heaven and and that the, the bread is his flesh. Notice 52, the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat. They don't understand. They're thinking earthly things. They're thinking on the earthly plane. They can't hear and understand the spiritual nature of what Jesus is saying. And so now in our passage, notice as Jesus has explained that it's not speaking about feeding on his flesh physically. It's talking about a spiritual feeding on the Son by faith. And now, very interesting, those that have heard it understand intellectually what Jesus is saying, but they hate it spiritually. They understand it intellectually, but they hate it spiritually. Now, John puts this in a way that needs some unpacking. They say this is a hard saying who can listen to it. They are not saying we don't understand what you're saying. Um, A.W. Pink put it this way, and this was helpful. He said it was not that they found the language of Christ so obscure as to be unintelligible, but what they had heard was so irreconcilable with their own views, they would not receive it. It wasn't that it was unintelligible, it's that they, they did not want to reconcile it with their own depraved hearts. Um, these were religious people. This was the church of the Old Covenant. These were people who knew the scriptures. These were people that probably knew the writings of Moses vastly better than you and I know them. These are people that read the scriptures in Hebrew and Aramaic. These are people that went to the synagogue. 
These are people that knew a Messiah was coming. These are people that claimed to believe what David and the prophets wrote. And yet when the one about whom all of those men wrote was standing and teaching them the essence of the scripture, they couldn't stand to hear it. Um, John Calvin has this really interesting observation on this. And, and this is certainly apropos to where we are today, because I've, I've heard this. There, there are pastors that talk about, you know, you really have to cater your, your message to people in such a way that they'll receive what you're saying. And you've got you've to really contextualize it in such a way that, that they can really understand it so that they'll want to receive it. And, and Calvin says, he says, many would say that it would have been better that a sermon of this kind would never have been preached by Christ. If, if what Jesus said was going to offend 20,000 people, Jesus let a megachurch just slip away. And if, if, if that's based on a sermon and the content of what he said, wouldn't it have been better for Jesus never to have said it? And Calvin says, um, he says, we ought to entertain a widely different view. He said, for then it was necessary, and now it is daily necessary, that what had been foretold concerning Christ should be perceived in his doctrine that he is a stone of stumbling. That's what Isaiah said, that he would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, Jesus wasn't being harsh. There are some people, and let me disabuse you of this idea, there are some in Reformed circles especially who think being belligerent and offending others in belligerency is spiritual. It is not. Calvin will actually go on to say, don't be that person. In the very next thing he wrote, he said, we should be guarded against being unnecessarily offensive to people. But it is impossible for the gospel to be preached and Christ to be held up and offense not to be taken. Because by nature, our depraved hearts hate to be told there's nothing you can do. You need one who did everything for you on the cross. And all you have to do is come to him and believe in him. The sweetest message anyone could ever hear is simultaneously the most offensive message that caused multitudes to flee from the Lord Jesus. It's remarkable. I remember as a new Christian thinking, having been redeemed out of so much darkness, I remember thinking, how can anyone hate the message of Christ crucified? It's everything. And yet by nature, all people hate it. He is a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling. Well, there is a very real sense, too, where what's happening here, and notice that we're told many of his disciples heard it. There are three groups in this passage. There are the Jews, there are the disciples, and then there are the twelve. And, and the disciples who apostatize are those who have been following Jesus around for a time. They had adhered to his teaching. They were very interested in listening to him. They were more interested in seeing his miracles and having free bread. But, but for a time, they would have identified themselves and said, yes, we are this man's disciples. We're going to know that they're not because notice, ultimately, they're not true saved disciples. Notice um, Jesus says in verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were and who did not believe. This is why he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless the Father is granted by the Father. And then notice verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, that's one of the saddest statements in the Bible. After this, many of his disciples 
turned back and no longer walked with him. What a sad statement. Um, Now, this was, in a real sense, this great apostasy is a warning to us, but it was also a test for the disciples. How was it a test for the disciples? And, And you have to listen very carefully here. Jesus is training and testing the 12. And it's a test for them because I can't imagine the social pressure they would have felt. They have given up everything to follow this one who has said, my flesh is food, my blood is drink. They've given up everything. And now to see a multitude of upwards to 20,000 people saying, forget that guy, we're out of here. You know, in my short time in ministry, I I have learned that most congregations can't even handle the pressure of seeing one discontent person leave without wanting to blame the leadership. One discontent person leaves a church, one family, what did they do wrong? 20,000. I can't imagine. The disciples are left there. Now Jesus let a megachurch of 20,000 go away. He's left with the 12. We're going to find out at the end. He's really only left with 11 because Judas is a devil. There's even going to be a hypocrite within the camp, the inner camp. Um, But I want you to really ponder that this morning. What would you have done if you had seen that many people go away? I, I think the deconversion movement we're seeing today is so popular because people want to follow fads and trends that offer them some sense of freedom from their obligation to trust and follow the Lord Jesus. Um, This was a crossroads for the disciples. Eric Alexander, the Scottish theologian, put it this way. It was for all of them, and in some real sense for us, a crossroads of life. They had to decide which way they were going to see their future spirituality in relation to God. Standing still for any length of time was not really an option, nor is it for us. Now listen to this. Alexander says the simple truth is that most of us are either going on or going back. Standing still is not an option. For most of us, the simple truth is we're either going on or we're going back. He said we may stagnate for a short period of time, But the pattern of our life is that we are moving either in one direction or the other. Isn't that interesting? You're going to have two diametrically opposed responses. The great apostasy and then Peter's great definitive confession of faith. Um, You know, these crossroads usually happen... At seasons of our life, someone gets married, someone has a child, they're too busy to go to worship, um, some, someone goes off to college, that there's too many, too many distractions for them to, to worship and follow Christ. Um, there are patterns you can follow if you look at people's lives. Those crossroads are happening at different moments in people's lives, and we're either going in one direction or the other. We're either going on to follow him or we're turning back to turn away from him. Well, 
I want us to consider, secondly, a definitive confession. These are some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. You know it so well. Um, I remember the comfort I found in them as a new believer. The Lord knows. He knows all things. He's already told us. He knows who would believe and, and who wouldn't. He knows everything, but as Jesus likes to do, he engages crowds and his disciples in questions. And so he turns to the twelve and he says, will you go away also? That's the great question he asks us. Will you go away also? Um, it's especially important for covenant children. If you're a child here this morning, um, the rest of your life will be spent in answering that question, will you go away? Um, you're nurtured in Christian homes, as I was, and then you see the world and the, you feel the pull of the world, and that question from the Lord Jesus comes to us. It comes to us no matter how old we are. Will you go away also? And notice Peter very quickly speaking on behalf of the disciples as he is sort of their representative apostle, answers him in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now, what I love about this is that Peter has been doing some thinking. He's thought about other teachers. No doubt Peter has heard all kinds of rabbis, all kinds of religious leaders. He lives in the most religious culture, maybe in human history, with religiosity. He has heard all, of all kinds of sects and all kinds of cults and splinter groups and tribes. He knows about the teaching of the Samaritans. He knows about the Essenes. He, he knows all the, the, the intertestamental literature. We know that from his own writings. Peter is well-versed. He's thought about all the different teachings he's heard, and he draws a conclusion, and he says to Jesus, of all that we have heard, who are we going to go to other than you? There is no one else for us to go to. And then he tells us why. He says, for you have the words of eternal life. Isn't it interesting? The very thing that drove the multitudes away, the words of life, are the very things that secured and planted the feet of the apostolic band with the Lord Jesus. Remember, Jesus has already said to the disciples, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit. And they are life. Um, here we are seeing the importance of the means of grace. What we, that's a phrase we've sort of uh, resuscitated in recent years, a phrase that the Puritans used to use, the means of grace. And the word, scripture, is the central means of grace. If we are ever to grow in our faith in the Lord Jesus, we, we need the Word of God, because the Word of God is spirit and it is life, and the Holy Spirit takes the spiritual words that are about the Lord Jesus, and he plants them deep into our minds and hearts. He indelibly writes them on our souls. Uh, his law convicts us of sin. The gospel allures us and draws us to the Savior. And, and if you are regenerate, if you're a true believer like Peter was here and the other disciples minus Judas, then, then God's word is always working. And, it, and remember, Jesus will say in John 10, and this is a perfect picture of it, remember in that great sh the Good Shepherd discourse, Jesus will say, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and I call them by name and they follow me. You see, here Peter has heard the voice of the Good Shepherd in 
the teaching of the Savior. He's heard the voice of the shepherd, and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, and presumably we're to understand, and you alone, have the words of eternal life. Peter understands that what Jesus is saying is the difference between heaven and hell. He understands the weightiness and the gravity of what Jesus is saying, who Jesus is, and what he's teaching. Um, That is, by the way, a confession that can only come from a heart that has been redeemed and renewed by grace. That can never come from just an intellectual assent to the truth. That comes out of a heart that is desperate for redemption. A heart that is longing to be redeemed and to have eternal life is a heart of a man or a woman who has been the object of the grace of God and has heard the voice of the Good Shepherd and has followed him. And notice he then makes that confession of faith. And he says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now he's making a statement that you're the Christ, you're the Redeemer, you're the long-awaited one, that you and you alone are who you are and what you say, what you've just taught us about your flesh and your blood, that this is eternal life, and you are the source of that life. And even if all others go away, this is what Peter's saying. Don't miss this. Peter is saying, because I don't know what's going to happen, and you don't know what's going to happen in our day. And even if everyone around you, everyone in your family, everyone in this church decided We're not going to follow the Lord Jesus anymore. We reject what we once believed. Peter is saying in the the face of that temptation, he is saying, even if everyone else goes away, where would we go except to you? This is what the psalmist says, isn't it, in Psalm 73, when he is finally brought back from his foolishness and and longing for the world, and and he's he's restored, and, and he says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth there is none that I desire besides you. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, who do do I have in heaven besides you, and on earth there is none that I desire besides you. Um, I want to ask you this morning, have you ever come to the place where the cry of your heart is, Lord, to whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. And I have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the, that is the definitive confession of faith. Um, there's a sweetness to it, too. Don't, don't miss that. There is there's something so sweet and beautiful that the Savior of the world would elicit that sort of response from those who have believed in him. The, the conjunction of the Savior and the soul of a believer Isn't that beautiful? Don't miss the beauty of it. That my sinful soul and the Savior are joined together in that way. Absolute dependence on him. Knowing that's been revealed to me that he is the Christ. Hymn writer puts it so well, why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room, while... Thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Um, there's this great meditation in John Bunyan's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Bunyan really struggled with assurance. 
through most of his life in a really horrific way. I almost don't want to recommend the book. It's so painful to read at times. One day he, he never feels closer to God, and the next day he knows he's going to hell. And Bunyan just, it's a roller coaster. But there's this beautiful, beautiful statement that Bunyan makes in that autobiography. He says this, he says, one day I was, I was out musing in a field, I was out musing on the wickedness and blasphemies of my heart toward God. And, and he said, and I remembered that verse uh, from Colossians, he has made peace through the blood of his cross. Bunyan said, by which I was made to see both again and again and again that day that my sinful soul and God were friends and could embrace and kiss through that blood. My sinful soul and God could embrace and kiss through that blood. Peter is showing us what's behind that confession. He, he is a man who knows that he is redeemed. He may not know like we know everything we know, but he knows that what Jesus has just said is everything that his soul needs. And every true believer follows in that step. Well, I want us to consider just very briefly and, and finally a sober warning. Notice Jesus's response is kind of unusual. You, you would expect him to say, you're right, or what he says elsewhere, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You would expect him to commend Peter, but notice what he does. This is fascinating. Peter says this sweet and beautiful definitive confession, and then notice verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Why is Jesus saying what he's saying here? I think that it is altogether possible that Jesus is responding this way because the disciples have just passed that test of seeing so many turn away from him and they have not followed. He has heard Peter speak on behalf of the apostolic band as a representative, and now he addresses all of them as the Savior and said, did I not choose you all to be my apostles? He's not talking about eternal election. He's talking about apostolic election. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is, is a devil? Because Jesus is concerned that even as they watched the multitude go away and they remained with him, of the harm and the damage it might do when they see Judas betray him. I read an old German theologian who said something along these lines. Oftentimes, it's false brethren in the church that cause more grief to believers than enemies outside. Um, oftentimes, when you have someone that you loved and trusted, I've had such a friend who, um, who preached at a, a service that was very special in my life and abandoned the faith for sexual sin. And it's very painful. And I have not allowed a year to go by that I don't think, how could he know so much truth? How could he have read so much John Owen? How could he know so much theology? How could he preach the sermons he preached? How could he tell me when I, I said to him once, you know, I'm just begging you that you would preach the gospel. 
at this service, and he said, you know me, Nick, he said, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel, only to go on to turn away from Christ, to embrace sexual sin. And it causes great grief. Um, and it causes confusion often in people's lives. Now what it should do is it should come home to us that there's a sober warning here. Even as we have seen the apostasy, even as we have heard the confession, Jesus would have us take note of this. Among the 12, just that small band, there would be one who would do worse than the crowds walking away. He would betray the Son of God. Um, Michael Card in that song about Judas says, only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. Only a friend can betray a friend. You can't betray someone unless you're a friend to them. Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me, and he knows who it was. You know, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, one of the twelve. You know what's really interesting? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. We have no idea where Jesus found and, and called Judas. Have you ever thought about that? We know nothing about Judas. But the Savior, at some point early in his ministry, found him, chose him, called him and appointed him, knowing he was going to be the instrument of Christ being nailed to the cross. I've always marveled at that thought that J.C. Ryle once said, Judas heard all of Jesus' sermons. He saw all of his miracles. He went and cast out demons. He preached the gospel. He spent inordinate hours with the other disciples. He had the money box. Um, love this thought, too. One, one old Puritan said, Jesus cares so little for money, he gave the money box to his betrayer. <laughs> That's a great thought. He gives his money to his enemy. Um, and yet there is a warning there, and I want to leave us with that thought, that we are to take a self-examination this morning, and we are to say, where, where would I be in this passage if I were in this passage? Would I be with the multitude that turns away? Would I be with Peter and the eleven who are believing and trusting and embracing the Lord Jesus and all that he has taught? Or would I be with Judas, who's just playing the part for a time but has no love for Christ in his heart? Um, I hope that we would all leave this place saying, I need the flesh and I need the blood of the Lord Jesus more than I need anything, and that we would be saying with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and to have known that you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are sobering words, and yet words that we need, and we pray, our God, that you would give us your spirit to make us to hear the voice of the Son afresh. And we pray, our God, that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us a greater love for the Savior, a greater sight to see that he is the only one that we can flee to and that he alone has the words of eternal life. Our God, would you do that in the hearts of each and every man and woman and boy and girl 
present here. We pray that you would preserve us and protect us. We pray that if there are any here who do not know you, that today would be the day of salvation. We pray that you would make us a people who are ever going forward and never turning back. We pray, our God, that you would keep us from being stagnant spiritually, that you would arouse in us new desires for the Lord Jesus and to be in your word. We do thank you and praise you for sending it out this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.